happening now, breaking news. Influential Democratic Senator Joe Manchin reveals he's not seeking re-election, delivering a major blow potentially to his party's chances of keeping control of the U.S. Senate next year. We're getting new reaction from a key senator to this bombshell announcement. Also tonight, a break in Israel's bombardment of Gaza. The White House says Israeli forces are moving forward with daily four-hour pauses in northern areas of the territory to allow Palestinian civilians to get out and humanitarian aid to get in. And CNN has exclusive new details on the prosecutor's strategy in the Trump classified documents trial and a potential witness list that includes a Mar-a-Lago plumber, a maid, a chauffeur, and a woodworker. Welcome to our viewers in the United States and around the world. I'm Wolf Blitzer, you're in the Situation Room. This is CNN Breaking News. First tonight, the breaking news rocking Capitol Hill. West Virginia Democratic Senator Joe Manchin saying he will not run for re-election. Let's go straight to our chief congressional correspondent, Manu Rajar. Manu, so what does this mean? for the balance of power potentially in the U.S. Senate. It is a huge blow, Wolf, to Democrats and their hopes of keeping control of the United States Senate, already failing, facing a very difficult map to keep control of the Senate, where it sits at 51-49. Joe Manchin, one of three Republican Democrats coming from states that Donald Trump won, who states that are in contention in the next cycle, West Virginia, Ohio, Montana being the other ones. Those senators running for re-election, Ohio, Montana. But Joe Manchin's decision today not to seek re-election will significantly increase the Republican chances of picking up that critical seat in the 51-49 Senate. That means Democrats will have to try to hold other seats in play in Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania and in Arizona and also try to pick off Republican incumbents. But those are in difficult states, Florida and Texas, which raises major concerns among Democrats about whether they can stay in power, something that would have huge ramifications for the next president. Now, Joe Manchin made his announcement on social media today and indicating that he is going to travel the country, try to galvanize supporters on both sides of the aisle to see if there's any movement to come together without any, without specifying exactly what he means by that comment. As you say, Manu, uh, he, he talked, oh, we hear this. The state Senate. But what I will be doing is traveling the country and speaking out to see if there is an interest in creating a movement to mobilize the middle and bring Americans together. So, Wolf, I am told that behind the scenes there was an effort by the chairman of the Senate Campaign Committee, Republican Campaign Committee, Steve Daines, to try to get Donald Trump to endorse Joe Manchin's key rival on the Republican side, Jim Justice. He's the sitting governor. He's facing his own primary. The thinking among Daines and what he pitched to Trump, endorse Jim Justice, elevate him in the Republican primary, help him out, and then potentially that could scare Joe Manchin away from the Senate race, decide not to run and consider a third-party bid for the White House. Something that could possibly help Trump and hurt Joe Biden if Manchin were to go down that route. So that calculation was happening behind the scenes. Daines lobbying Trump, Trump endorsing justice, now justice favored in that Republican primary and now favored to take back a critical seat for the Republicans next year, Wolf. As you point out, Manu, Manchin actually in that video, he talked about mobilizing the middle. 
Could he be planning an independent bid for president? He has not ruled that out. He has been very, very coy when asked about that repeatedly by me, other reporters, all down the line, refusing to say how he may come down. He did attend a no-labels conference. Conference That's that group, the outside group that is considering trying to field a third-party candidate, a conference that he attended earlier this summer up in New Hampshire that critical early state for presidential primary state. Will he decide to run? That is still uncertain. He is 76 years old, Wolf. And also there's there's a recognition among Manchin allies that he would probably have a very narrow path to winning the White House if he decided to go that route. But still, Manchin's comments will only fuel speculation about his next move or if he's planning to hang it up for good. All right, we shall see. Manu Raju, uh, thank you very much for that report. Manu, by the way, has an exclusive interview with the former Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy. That will air on Inside Politics Sunday at 11 a.m. Eastern right here on CNN. Turning out of the war in the Middle East, uh, as the White House says, Israel has agreed to daily four-hour humanitarian pauses in portions of northern Gaza. CNN's Jeremy Diamond is joining us now live from Tel Aviv with the latest. Jeremy, how are these pauses supposed to work? Well, Wolf, Israel has already been implementing some version of these pauses for about five days now, allowing civilians in northern Gaza to flee south using evacuation corridors uh, during windows of about four to six hours over the last five days. But today, the White House's National Security Council saying that Israel uh, effect effectively is formalizing these pauses, uh, allowing uh, four hours or more windows of pauses in fighting to allow those civilians to flee south. A senior Israeli officials is calling these pauses, quote, tactical localized pauses, giving civilians in different parts of northern Gaza each day the opportunity to flee south. We know, of course, that Israel has been calling on civilians in northern Gaza to flee south for weeks now. But those uh, orders or those recommendations by the Israeli military have been very hard for Palestinian civilians to follow. The evacuation routes have been very dangerous. Sometimes they have been struck by the Israeli Air Force. And in addition to that, uh, people don't have the resources sometimes to flee. But now, as the humanitarian situation is worsening very rapidly in northern Gaza, Tens of thousands of these civilians are taking advantage. 50,000 people yesterday, 80,000 people today, uh, as we are watching in northern Gaza as food, water, and medicine is becoming increasingly scarce. Now, the President Biden uh, taking some credit for this, saying that he's been pushing the Israeli Prime Minister for some time now for these pauses, and even saying that these it has taken, quote, a little longer than he had hoped for this pause to be implemented. You know, Jeremy, what else can you tell us about other efforts to try to free the hostages? Well, Wolf, there have been negotiations ongoing for weeks now, mediated by the Qatari government involving the United States, Israel and Hamas as well. Uh, and for weeks now, we have watched as these talks have appeared to make progress and then completely broken down once again. But today... The top intelligence officials for Israel and the United States meeting with the Qatari prime minister in Doha, Qatar today to discuss a potential plan to release 10 to 20 hostages in exchange for a three-day ceasefire, as well as the entry of additional humanitarian aid into Gaza uh, and a uh, Hamas to provide a list of hostages being held. At the, we don't know yet whether those talks are actually going to produce a deal, but it is significant that they are happening and that 
talks appear to be progressing, and perhaps those humanitarian pauses will help as well. At the same time, today, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, one of the militant groups inside of Gaza, releasing a video showing a 77-year-old and a 13-year-old Israeli hostages uh, who they say that they are holding. They say they are prepared to release them on humanitarian grounds, but as of yet, they've yet to say exactly, exactly when or under what circumstances they would do so. Wolf? Are the U.S. and Israel, Jeremy, on the same page as far as the length of any of these so-called pauses in fighting? Well, what appears clear is that there is going to be, these are going to be for about four hours each day. Today, we saw the Israelis extend uh, that pause for a couple additional hours. What appears to be uh, more up for debate is exactly the terminology of what they are calling these. The United States is very much referring to these as humanitarian pauses, as pauses in the fighting. The Israelis, for their part, they don't want to say that at all. They are simply saying this is an evacuation corridor and that people can safely move along those lines. And the Israeli prime minister tonight also reaffirming that this is not a ceasefire and that there will not be a ceasefire unless hostages are released. Jeremy Diamond reporting for us from Tel Aviv. Thank you very much. Uh, for more on all these developments, uh, let's bring in the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, Democratic Senator Mark Warner. Senator, thank you so much for joining us. I want to get to the developments in Israel in a moment. But first, uh, let's start with Democratic Senator Joe Manchin, your colleague, announcing today he will not run for re-election. How damaging potentially is his decision to Democratic hopes to retain the majority in the U.S. Senate? Well, Wolf, Joe and I are great friends. Matter of fact, um, he and I were governors together. I was the guy he called when he was thinking about coming to the Senate. I encouraged him to come. And I hope your viewers remember he replaced Robert Byrd, who was a uh, icon in West Virginia. And Joe Manchin has delivered for the people of West Virginia in ways that um, I'm not even sure all the folks in West Virginia uh, realize. And I think he's had an incredible record. I mean, Every one of these bipartisan efforts, whether we're thinking about the CHIPS bill, the infrastructure bill, obviously the IRA, some of the, the, the final uh, efforts even under COVID funding under President Trump, and Joe was part of. He was integral to. I was part of all those groups as well. And I think he's left a great legacy. Uh, I'm going to miss him. Now, in terms of, of uh, what happens in, in 2024, um, you know, I'm not going to try to tell your audience or you that uh, West Virginia is not going to be a, a, a steep, steep hill for a Democrat to, to climb. Um, but I'd also say this, you know, four days ago, people didn't think in Virginia that we'd win the House and the Senate in the, the legislative races. So I'm going to keep an optimistic view going forward. All right. Uh, Senator Manchin, as you know, uh, Senator, says he will be traveling the country to create a movement to mobilize Americans, in his words, in the middle. Are you concerned he will launch potentially a third-party challenge to President Biden? Listen, I think that I cannot imagine a world in which Joe Manchin would do anything to help Donald Trump get reelected. So uh, listen, I give him his space to, to advocate uh, processes and bipartisanship. I, I think that's a positive thing. But I can't imagine any world in which he does anything that would help Donald Trump get reelected. If he were to do that, presumably, he certainly would help Trump in, in the final outcome. Uh, let's turn to the Middle East right now while I have you, Senator. The White House says Israel will pause military operations, at least in parts of northern Gaza, for four hours, four-hour periods each day. But do these pauses actually go far enough from your perspective as Palestinian civilians are killed and injured every day? Well, listen, I think it's in 
humanitarian interest to provide these pauses. And I heard your previous reporter, you know, in terms of the semantics of we're going to call it a pause or a cessation of hostilities. Um, you know, I think at the end of the day, they ought to be judged on can we get assistance to Palestinians who've been under, you know, enormous strain over the last month uh, with the bombing, with the amount of deaths. And I would argue this make is in Israel's best interest. They're going to need to keep American support and world support to go after the Hamas leaders, the terrorists who created the atrocities on October 7th. Um, but it's also important in terms of not opening up a second front on this war. I have been concerned. I, I contacted with a, a number of senators, uh, the administration, and they have put pressure, I think, finally on the Israeli government to try to stop some of the settler violence in the West Bank um, against Palestinians. Uh, because if the West Bank security services, the Palestinian security services, all quit, uh, that would create the possibility of a huge conflict on the West Bank. And part of that, keeping the temperatures under control, is trying to make sure that the, the non-Hamas Palestinians in Gaza get the kind of humanitarian assistance um, that uh, is civilized and appropriate. And I think, um, I think this is a step forward. All right. Uh, uh, this Palestinian Islamic Jihad group, uh, another terrorist organization in Gaza, said it says it is prepared to release two Israeli hostages on what they call humanitarian grounds. Put on your uh, hat as, um, as the chairman of the Intelligence Committee. What do you know about this, and what can you tell us about the groups, uh, this group besides uh, Hamas that are holding hostages? Well, one thing you'd know, Wolf, as chairman of the Intelligence Committee, I'm not going to share any intelligence that uh, uh, we or the Israelis might have about the hostages. I think anything that get hostages free is a step in the right direction. I think it is also, as I'm sure most of your viewers, and I know you understand, the vast majority of these hostages are still held by Hamas. It's one of the reasons, as, they, as the Israeli forces now surround Gaza City, you know, the real challenge is going to be how do you get into some of those tunnels and uh, eliminate some of the Hamas leadership without putting all of these hostages in further and harm's way. And that's something that uh, uh, obviously the Israelis, I think, are, are focused on. On a political note, uh, Democrats had a big election night uh, in several states, including your home state of Virginia. Abortion rights for women was a, a key issue in many of those races. Do you believe Democrats won because of President Biden or in spite of him? I think, Wolf, that Democrats won a lot of times based on specifics in their individual state. And abortion in Virginia was a big issue. But I think a bigger issue, frankly, than President Biden pro-con is the fact that in Virginia, we obviously are affected a lot by the federal government, a lot of federal workers, a lot of defense establishments. They've seen the craziness that's been coming out of the House uh, MAGA crowd. They've seen the extreme positions. And even when you had folks in Virginia that were saying, hey, no, we're not that kind of extremist. We're going to try to put reasonable limits on, say, a, a woman's health care choices. Virginians just didn't believe it. And I think there is this seepage of the Republican brand being taken over by the MAGA crowd. They're driving the bus. And I can tell you in Virginia, no matter what the governor or some reasonable Republican said, there was a fear that if they won uh, that extreme group, not just on, on women's health care choices, but on voting rights, on, on gun laws, and on basic Democratic tenets, could all be in jeopardy. Senator Mark Warner of Virginia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Wolf. Coming up, we'll have more on Senator Joe Manchin's decision today 
not to seek re-election and how it potentially complicates Democrats' prospects in 2024. And upcoming next, the CNN's exclusive new, new reporting on the Mar-a-Lago workers who may testify against Donald Trump in the classified documents case. Stay with us. You're in the Situation Room. All right, there's more breaking news uh, right now. CNN has exclusive new reporting on what to expect in Donald Trump's criminal trial in the classified documents case down in Florida. CNN's chief legal affairs correspondent, Paula Reed, is joining us. She's got the details. What, do you, what have you learned, Paula? Well, Wolf, this could be one of the most significant cases in U.S. history. And CNN has learned that among the witnesses who could be called at trial, a maid, a chauffeur, a plumber, and even a woodworker. Now, prosecutors could also, of course, call Secret Service agents or intelligence officials. But these folks who are working in and around Mar-a-Lago, they're the eyes and ears of the resort, and they could provide the public and the jury with new insight into the environment at the club and just how vulnerable our nation's secrets were during this time. Now, let's look at some of the testimony they may be able to provide. Let's take the woodworker. We've learned that this individual was installing crown molding in Trump's bedroom in February 2022 and saw some papers. Now, we don't know if they were, in fact, classified documents, but we know he's been interviewed by federal investigators multiple times. And we've also learned from our sources that Trump was increasingly frustrated as investigators got deeper and deeper into Mar-a-Lago. We're told that when he found out that the maid who cleans his bedroom was speaking with investigators, he, quote, went ballistic. Now, the other thing about witnesses like this is these are real people. These are not political actors. These are not politicians. They're really going to resonate with a jury if they are called to testify. Now, of course, in order for them to be called to testify, there has to be a trial. And right now, the trial is scheduled for May 2024. But the judge overseeing the case is currently considering whether to push that back until after the 2024 election. All right, Paula, stay with us. I also want to bring in our legal experts, Shan Wu and Jennifer Rogers. Shan, these staffers uh, were the eyes and ears of Mar-a-Lago, as we, as we know. How valuable would they be as witnesses? They would be very valuable, Wolf. Uh, with that cast of characters, uh, reminds me of the old board game Clue, the murder mystery. And, of course, the best uh, prosecutions are presented to a jury and the fact finders as that kind of a compelling story told by people who can testify to what they saw, what they heard, what they said. And so a lot of Trump's defense wants to really focus on more legal esoteric arguments. What was the scope of his authority, for example, to classify, declassify. But these folks are the eyes and ears on the ground. Uh, and as Paula has pointed out, they really will supply the details of how those documents really were being treated. Jennifer, what do you make of the uh, pretty extensive network of witnesses and evidence the special counsel is building for his case? Uh, what picture will, uh, will the special counsel be trying to paint? Well, Jack Smith wants to paint a complete picture, Wolf, and that's why federal investigators are so thorough as they go through all the people who might have relevant information. So it's not at all surprising that they're not only talking to people like government employees, secret service agents, and so on. They want to talk to the people who were in and out of these rooms in the months and weeks before the FBI went in. We have a snapshot in time of the day that the search warrant was executed, of course. We know what was there, how it was kept on that day. But they want to know about what was happening in the time period before that 
And not just when Trump was in the room with his Secret Service agents, they want to know who was in there, what it all looked like, and who had access to those rooms and those materials when he wasn't there. So they're putting together a comprehensive picture, and it's going to be a compelling case, I think, when it does finally get to trial. Paula, as you know, many of these employees uh, still work at Mar-a-Lago uh, and will be getting legal support from Trump. Potentially, how does that complicate this, their position? It's incredibly complicated, Wolf, because not only are these people trying to keep their jobs, and many of them cannot afford a legal counsel in a situation like this. And the fact that the former president has extended uh, this assistance to a lot of these witnesses, that's how his legal team has been sort of kept in the loop about exactly who investigators were speaking with and what they were learning. But again, these witnesses, they're going to be critical to the case. Many people, I think, were shocked to see those photos in the indictment, those boxes of classified documents on a stage at a ballroom or in a bathroom, places they don't belong. But these are the kind of witnesses who can really talk about just how vulnerable those materials were. Shan, as a defense lawyer, how would you advise these Mar-a-Lago workers going into this? Well, the ethical thing to advise them on, Wolf, would be tell the truth and nothing but the truth. I think there's a pressure aspect here, as Paula was alluding to, the fact that it's the Trump team basically finding the lawyers and Trump paying for them does more than just give them an insight into what the people may testify to, which is really valuable, but it also increases the pressure on them to not be as forthcoming. And as a defense lawyer, that's a very delicate balance. I mean, you need to have your loyalties completely focused on the client, but you also have to recognize the economic pressures that they're under. Jennifer, uh, Trump apparently went ballistic, as we heard when the maid who cleans his uh, bedroom at Mar-a-Lago was asked to speak with investigators. So what do you make of that? Well, Trump famously values loyalty over everything else, including truthfulness, honesty, and integrity. He wants people to be loyal to him no matter what, no matter the cost to them. So, you know, it's not surprising that he went ballistic when he found out that people that work for him are being questioned, but that's what investigators do. They're trying to get to the truth, so they're gonna talk to everybody. And as Shannon Paula were just talking about, you know, it's a problem if people who want to tell the truth have lawyers who have different interests, right? A conflict with that and want to advise them otherwise. So uh, Jack Smith and his team has been very good about going to the court and saying, we need to have a hearing here about whether this lawyer is properly advising the client or there's a conflict there. So hopefully they will continue to be on top of that issue so that they make sure they're getting the accurate testimony here. Paula, you reported that the judge in this case is weighing whether to push the trial until after next year's presidential election. Uh, what would be the impact of that? Yeah, that photo right there, that's Judge Eileen Cannon. She's the federal judge, a Trump appointee overseeing this case, and she is currently mulling whether she should push this back. And look, trials get, get moved all the time. They get postponed. But the unusual factor here is she's considering whether she should push this back until after the election. If former President Trump is reelected, he could likely make this entire case go away. It also does not allow the American public to see a resolution to this case before casting their ballot. But based on what we saw in the last hearing related to this issue, it does appear that she may push this back until the end of, of 2024. Paula Reed, Shan Wu, Jennifer Rogers, to all of you, thank you very much. Up next, Senator Joe Manchin says he won't run for re-election. So what does that mean for Democrats and the 2024 race for president? We'll discuss that when we come back. 
This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. News developing tonight from Capitol Hill as Democratic Senator Joe Manchin says he will not seek re-election next year. Our political experts are here to discuss. David Chalian, you're a political director. Democrats were already facing an uphill climb in their hopes to retain the majority in the U.S. Senate. What does this move from Manchin do to their chances? Yeah, it makes that climb dramatically steeper. You are right. This was going to be a tough cycle for Democrats to hang on to the majority. You know, they only have a 51-49 majority right now in the Senate, Wolf. Manchin is basically the only Democrat that could have a chance at winning in West Virginia, and that wasn't even assured uh, this next cycle. So with his departure from the race, that seat is all but certain to fall into uh, Republican hands. And that means there's no margin for error for Democrats. uh, And they've got to win elections in red states in a presidential year like in Montana or with Sherrod Brown in Ohio, never mind in all the battleground states where there are a lot of competitive Senate races. Well, so it is a steep climb for the Democrats uh, to, to maintain their majority. Jeff Duncan, the former lieutenant governor of Georgia, does this announcement from Manchin essentially guarantee a Republican pick next year in West Virginia? What do you think? Well, it certainly looks that way. Like David said, I mean, I think Joe Manchin was the one unicorn that could win in a state that Donald Trump won by 40 points, which is just an amazing number. Uh, you know, I think You know, Democrats are showing up with a problem that Republicans, you know, we talk a lot about Republicans having to figure out a way to win the suburbs. Democrats got to figure out a way to win rural states like West Virginia. Uh, And, you know, Joe Manchin has worked hard and, you know, he's a guy without a party at this point, which is probably explains why he's had so many pivotal roles over the last couple of years with so many important issues. Ashley Etienne's with us as well. I want to play, Ashley, a key part from Manchin's uh, video announcement today that potentially could cause a lot of concern over at the White House. Listen and watch this. I will not be running for re-election to the United States Senate. But what I will be doing is traveling the country and speaking out to see if there is an interest in creating a movement to mobilize the middle and bring Americans together. Ashley, do you see that as Manchin potentially saying he's exploring a potential run for president? Yeah, I mean, he's been flirting with this idea of a third party run for some time. So the announcement that he was leaving the Senate was not a didn't come as a great surprise to many Democrats. And as you can imagine, there were some that that breathed a sigh of relief because they felt like he's been a thorn in the side of the president and running interference on his agenda. You know, I reached out to the Democratic senatorial campaign and here's what they're saying, that they're expanding the battleground field 
uh, going into the next cycle, that they're going to include now Florida and Texas. They're already making incredibly big investments. The, the president went up with an ad last night that's targeted to Latino voters. In both of those states, you got very vulnerable Republicans who barely won their last cycle. We've got two Democratic candidates or can, challengers, I should say, that are outpacing and out fundraising the Republicans on the other side. So we're in this is somewhat of, um, you know, this puts the, the Senate and, and of course, un, un, um, uncharted territory and, and makes it, you know, un, unclear what's going to happen with Democrats. The, you know, the senatorial campaign feels like there's quite a, there's a lot of opportunity in Florida and Texas that they're going to explore. David Chalian, as you know, no labels. The group that many Democrats fear will launch a third party presidential ticket has already released a statement praising Manchin. What do you make of that? Well, they have held events that Joe Manchin has appeared at in talking about uh, a potential uh, independent run or third party run for the White House. Wolf, no labels recently has been indicating it, they think their best shot would be with a Republican atop the ticket, not uh, a Democrat on top of their uh, bipartisan unity ticket. But the reality is when you do the electoral math, what happens more often than not with a no labels candidacy uh, is that Donald Trump gets elected to the White House. And so uh, that is something that Joe Manchin or anyone else considering running with no labels uh, will have to take into consideration the real uh, potential impact on the race. Ashley, let me get back to you and ask you some other news that developed today. Jill Stein, she announced today that she's again running to be the Green Party nominee. Many Democrats blame her for Hillary Clinton's loss back in 2016. How significant is this development? Well, I mean, I think the, the real question is if you have two third party challengers that get on the ballot in many of these really, really tight states, it could cause a problem for the president. But here's the reality is the president's in the strongest position as any other president that we've seen at this time in their tenure. He's, you know, outperformed. Democrats have outperformed Republicans uh, in the last four cycles. He's had the best midterm and off year of any president in 20 years. So I think that, you know, where is where in this is bad news for the Senate. I think the, the, the Biden campaign aren't sweating it much. Jeff, while I have you, I want to get to another topic that developed today. Federal law enforcement officials are investigating disturbing reports of suspicious letters containing powdery substances sent to election offices in several states, including your state of Georgia. What's your reaction to that? Well, it, it's despicable to think somebody would, would go to those uh, lengths to hurt somebody. Uh, obviously, it, it feels as though it's a terroristic move. It, it's, a, it's a power move by somebody who's disillusioned by the facts. Uh, you know, and, but this is the kind of stuff that happens when you're willing to fan the flames on outright blatant lies uh, and continue to cultivate those lies years afterwards. And the most important people in the world, like Donald Trump and those closest to him, fan those flames. It, it, it cultivates a chaos and chaotic and crazy atmosphere. And, uh, you know, I, I just uh, I feel for those that were affected. And I hope I hope it's, it stops quickly. Yeah, very disturbing indeed. Uh, Jeff Duncan, uh, David Chalian, Ashley Etienne, guys, thank you very much Thanks, for joining us. Just ahead, thank the you. Actors Union reaches a tentative deal with Hollywood Studios to end a long and very costly strike. We're going to tell you about what's in the agreement and what it means for the industry and what you'll be able to be seeing. Stay with us. You're in the situation. The Actors Union is ending its months-long strike after reaching a tentative deal with Hollywood Studios, meaning movies and TV shows will be back in production soon. 
Brian Todd is following these important developments for us. Brian, did the actors get everything they wanted? Wolf, industry watchers believe the actors got most of what they wanted, but between this strike and the writer's walkout, billions of dollars were lost in the entertainment industry. And now, production has to rev up again quickly. For nearly four months, stars like Jessica Chastain, Bob Odenkirk, and others walked the picket lines with their lesser-known colleagues during an actor strike that raised serious questions about whether the movie and TV industry as we know it could survive. But tonight, a sigh of relief. Hollywood actors have reached a tentative agreement with the major film and TV studios to end the strike. There is so much language in this contract that covers so much new ground that has never been in any other contract before. Specific terms of the deal were not disclosed, and it still has to be ratified by the actors' union members. But according to a statement released by the union, the deal will give actors, the famous and obscure, a historic pay increase. You have to remember SAG-AFTRA represents 160,000 workers, and these are not necessarily big-time rich actors. A lot of these folks are just starting out and living paycheck to paycheck. The agreement also gives actors better residuals for streaming programs. But at the center of the strike was the use of artificial intelligence, which Hollywood actors and writers have feared could someday replace them, or at least part of their work. The deal calls for actors to be able to have consent and compensation when an AI likeness of them is used. They're intended to be protections that not only will make sure that our members have the right to control the use of their image and likeness today, but as the technology develops and grows in the industry, we'll continue to provide them with that kind of control. And it's so essential because it's really their persona that's being used. The actors and writers walkouts, the first time both entities had been on strike simultaneously in more than 60 years, proved incredibly costly over the course of the last six months. In September, California Governor Gavin Newsom estimated the loss for his state's economy was more than $5 billion. Now the key question... I'm taking you with me. Do what I say when I say it. When will we see new episodes of popular shows like Max's The Last of Us or The White Lotus, both from CNN's parent company, Warner Brothers Discovery? Sometimes just watching them eat every night makes me like gouge my eyes out. Analyst Sarah Fisher says some shows might come back as early as the first quarter of next year. It's going to be hard to start production immediately. They're going to have to wait a few weeks in order to get schedules, vendors, sets moved. And then once that starts, things will move pretty quickly. Now, while the actors are getting historically higher pay with this new deal, one industry analyst says there could be less overall work to go around for them in the future because he expects the studios and the streaming services might reduce the numbers of movies and shows they order to save money. Wolf? We shall see. Brian Todd, thank you very, very much for that report. Coming up, survivors of the deadly Hamas terror attacks in Israel are preserving their memories of October 7th for the historical record. We'll have a live report when we come back. Some survivors of the deadly Hamas terror attacks in Israel are now recording their testimonies to preserve their witness accounts of that day for future generations. CNN's Nick Watt is joining us live from Los Angeles right now. Nick, how is this effort coming together so quickly after the attacks? Well, Wolf, they mobilized very fast, understanding the benefit of capturing memories while they are still so fresh. But they do plan to go back and re-interview everybody once they've had a chance to 
process what's happened. You know, some of the people the Shoah Foundation spoke to, some of the people you're about to hear from, still have children held hostage in Gaza. Tomer Peretz was collecting bodies at Kibbutz Berry within hours of the slaughter, October 7th. Wow, what the f***? The entire village is like full of bodies. I, I... He'd gone to Israel for a family wedding. State your name. Tomer Peretz. Now back home in LA, taping his testimony at the Shoah Foundation. I was too coward to be on the side of the head. I didn't want to see faces. And then my time to touch the dead body came. It was the first time. You work like that, you know. Rolling. For decades, the Shoah Foundation has collected the testimonies of Holocaust survivors. I'd never touched a dead body before. I've seen dead bodies. Well, somebody else came, we just put that body out. One body. Well, it didn't take long before that was multiplied by thousands. Every year at school in Israel, we, we used to get a lecture from a Holocaust survivor. And as a kid, I was always getting bored listening to him, like, okay, okay, we got, okay, okay, so they killed you guys. She's like, all right, well, all right, let's, let's move on. It will never happen again. It's a history. October 7th saw the largest loss of Jewish life in a day since the Holocaust. Now, the Shoah Foundation is taking testimony from a new generation, October 7th survivors. It's about providing a platform for the voices of survivors to echo for future generations. For the better part of a year, we've resolved that we need to begin taking testimony on contemporary anti-Semitism. But then October 7th happened, and we had to ramp up our efforts very, very quickly. They did worse than Nazis. The Nazis had, the, the Nazi had, you know, the, the, the little human in them just to guess us. My two little daughters, uh, and they were like crying, weeping. Amit was kidnapped, Amit was kidnapped. Amit is my son. With the knife in my hand and the baby on the other hand, trying to keep her not crying so no one will hear us. And it went and it, it felt like forever. My village was destroyed by the Hamas. There is no village to return to. Peretz told his interviewer what he cannot tell his own children. Lie to them. Don't tell them the truth. So, there's, there's tissue there if you like. Just lie to them. The killing goes on. Palestinians also suffering and no end in sight for anyone. Is there a way out? Is there a solution? Is there light at the end of some tunnel? I think so. I think so. But I think we, um, we've got to go so low. Both sides, I guess, needs to get a big slap before something good will come out of it. Might this be that moment? I hope so. Now, the Shoah Foundation is only taking testimony from the Israeli victims, the victims in Israel of the October 7th attacks, because they say that those attacks were anti-Semitic, so they fall squarely within the mission of the foundation. However, 
They say if anyone would like to take the testimony from Palestinian civilians, the Shoah Foundation is very happy to share their methodology. Wolf. All right, Nick Watt, uh, thanks for that report. Very important indeed. Coming up, we're going to have much more on our top story. Senator Joe Manchin announcing he will not run for re-election, putting Democratic hopes of holding the majority in the U.S. Senate in serious jeopardy and raising questions about a potential presidential bid. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Happening now, breaking news. Senator Joe Manchin throws a major new curveball at fellow Democrats announcing he won't seek re-election. The powerful moderate giving Republicans an opening to flip his state and grab Senate control from his party. Also breaking, the Mar-a-Lago employees who may testify against Donald Trump in the classified documents trial. CNN has exclusive new reporting on the prosecution's criminal case. And I'll ask key White House official John Kirby if Israel has fully committed to daily four-hour pauses in its bombardment of northern Gaza. This as CNN is getting a closer look at the Israeli military's war against Hamas. Welcome to our viewers here in the United States and around the world. I'm Wolf Blitzer. You're in the Situation Room. This is CNN Breaking News. Tonight, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin says he will not run for re-election, delivering a major blow to Democrats' hope to keep control of the U.S. Senate in 2024. Let's get right to CNN's Melanie Zanona. She's up on Capitol Hill. Melanie, does this open up a seat that Republicans potentially could pick up next year? Yeah, absolutely, Wolf. This is a huge blow for Democrats and their hopes of keeping the majority. Democrats were waiting on pins and needles to see what Joe Manchin was going to do. And that is because West Virginia is going to be one of the toughest seats for Democrats to defend next year, in addition to Ohio and Montana. West Virginia is a deep red state. Donald Trump won the state by double-digit points. And without an incumbent there, it is going to be a lot easier for Republicans to flip that seat. But even Manchin was likely going to face a tough time winning re-election. Jim Justice, the popular Republican governor, is running on the GOP side. He is also endorsed by Donald Trump. And so Republicans are feeling quite confident. In a statement, the head of the Senate GOP campaign arm said, we like our odds in West Virginia. And meanwhile, in an equally telling statement, the Senate campaign arm put out a statement saying they're going to start focusing on trying to flip seats in Texas and in Florida. But those are going to be equally difficult for Democrats. And remember, Republicans only need to flip two seats in order to win back the majority, Wolf. Melanie, as you know, Manchin appeared at a third-party town hall this past summer. Could he run for president as an independent? Well, this certainly has renewed speculation about Manchin's political future. It is uncertain at this moment what he is going to do. But in his announcement video today, he did say that he wants to explore if there is some middle ground out there. Let's take a listen. I will not be running for re-election to the United States Senate. But what I will be doing is traveling the country and speaking out 
to see if there is an interest in creating a movement to mobilize the middle and bring Americans together. So it's unclear exactly what he means by that, but he has toyed with the idea of running as a third party for president. He has not ruled it out. And the bipartisan group No Labels, which has long been a huge supporter of Manchin's, has said they might offer up a so-called unity ticket in 2024. So we'll see what Joe Manchin decides to do in the long term. But in the short term, no doubt a huge setback for Democrats and their quest to hold on to power. Wolf. All right, Melanie, thank you. Melanie Zanona up on Capitol Hill. Let's get some analysis right now. Joining us, CNN political commentators, Scott Jennings and Ashley Allison. Ashley, let me start with you. What are the implications you think of Manchin's decision not to seek re-election? This is significant. I mean, we already, as Democrats, had an uphill battle with trying to make sure Sherrod Brown holds his seat in Ohio, John Tester holds his seat in Montana, and now West Virginia. Now look, Joe Manchin wasn't overly democratic the last couple of years in uh, while the Biden in the Biden administration. But it does matter when you're talking about committee assignments, when you're talking about actually the vice president being able to break the tie in the Senate. So it's significant that he is not running. It doesn't mean Dems can't still hold the Senate. I mean, we have races. There's a a race in Texas. There's a race in Florida. And, it you know, Montana and Ohio still could stay democratic. But 2024 just got a little more intense. Certainly did. You know, Scott Manchin says he's going to be traveling around the country speaking to those in the middle. Uh, does that suggest to you he may actually try to run as the third party candidate? Yeah, why not? Everyone else is. I mean, you get Jill Stein jump in today. Manchin's been flirting with it. You've got Cornell West out there, RFK Jr. As as significant as this is for the Senate, and I do think this is great for Republicans because they were going to have to spend to beat Joe Manchin. They won't have to do that now. This idea that you could have a wild, wild west presidential campaign with numerous independents if they can solve the ballot access issues really could be problematic for both Biden and Trump. They are both deeply unpopular. Americans don't want that rematch and they may be looking for a third, fourth, fifth or sixth door. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. Senator Mark Warner the, from Virginia, chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee in the last hour, he told me he can't imagine Manchin would run as a third party candidate because potentially that could really help Trump assuming he's the Republican nominee. Do you agree with the senator? Well, a third party candidate definitely would help Donald Trump. And to Scott's point, there are so many now that it could pull away from Joe Biden's coalition. Now, Joe Manchin also probably could get some Republican votes from Donald Trump, and uh, but he would also potentially get some of those independents. So it's so close right now if Donald Trump and Joe Biden are at the top of the ticket for the two parties that any other variable could backfire on either party. And with Joe Manchin, I think it kind of backfires on Joe Biden. How do you think Mitch McConnell is reacting to all of this? <laughs> you used to work with him. I did, but, uh, happily. Uh, I think West Virginia was the top target for Republicans. I think they felt good about it anyway. But the real coup here is you don't have to spend. Jim Justice, the Republican, is going to win easily in West Virginia. So you can now move those resources that you might have had to spend over there in West Virginia to Ohio to take out Sherrod Brown to Montana, maybe even to Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. uh, possibly even to Arizona. So it, it, it does alleviate some of the pressure on spending. But you can put this one in the Republican bank and then uh, the majority will be fought out in Ohio and Montana, maybe a couple of others. And Jill Stein is uh, apparently running as well. She heard Hillary Clinton what, back in 2016. You think that's going to be a major setback for Biden? Jill Stein. Um, it's like a fruit fly that you can't get rid of, you know. Um, it could hurt Joe Biden. Now, again, even if she got 1% of the vote, that could also, you know, come against Joe Biden's coalition. The one thing I will say, though, is that 
with this potential six-person presidential race, we're in unprecedented times at this point. So we've been in unprecedented times with the potential nominee of Donald Trump and having felony convictions. So people are really going to have to figure out how to run races, to talk to voters, to talk to the issues. And even with everything as an uphill battle right now for the Senate for Democrats, after this week, with abortion being a leading issue, I still think there's an opportunity to go and talk to voters and really meet them where they are and Democrats pull it out. What do you think? Uh, young progressives, I think, are unhappy with Joe Biden right now. You give them any other uh, option, maybe they'll take it. I also think they have the double haters in this election, people who don't like either candidate. Uh, some of those in last year's midterm and even in this year's elections, obviously they don't like Biden, but they're still voting Democrat because they're worried about Trump. Maybe they're looking for another door. The scrambling of this uh, could drive the ultimate winner <clears throat> of the Electoral College down to near 40 percent, maybe even lower. We haven't had that in this country in a very long time. Yeah. All right, Scott, thanks very much. Ashley, thanks to you as well. Just ahead, the latest out of the Middle East as Israel intensifies its operations in Gaza. I'll get reaction from a key White House National Security Council official, John Kirby, standing by to join us. Plus, exclusive new CNN reporting on the classified documents case against Donald Trump. We're learning about potential witnesses the special counsel could put on the stand. Tonight, CNN is getting a closer look at Israeli military operations in Gaza. CNN reported from Gaza under Israel Defense Forces escort at all times and as a condition for journalists to embed with the IDF, media outlets must submit footage filmed in Gaza to Israeli military for review. CNN did not submit its script to the IDF and had editorial control over the final report. Let's bring in CNN's Oren Lieberman. He's joining us live from Tel Aviv right now. Uh, Oren, tell us what you saw. Well, first, it's nearly impossible to get into Gaza to report. You can't get in from the Israeli side as a reporter or from the Egyptian side. So the chance to see what was happening was given to us by the IDF, who took us in with a tank about a mile deep into Gaza to see what was happening on the ground. Not only the progress they say they're making, but also the challenges they face in a war that is very much hot. Through the breach, we enter northern Gaza at the Erez border crossing. The land here, once fertile farmland, is barren, and the trees that might have provided enemy cover destroyed. In the distance, smoke from an Israeli airstrike is a stark reminder that this is day 34 of a war that may stretch much longer. On Thursday, the IDF chief of staff and the head of the country's internal security service entered Gaza and promised strength through cooperation. Everyone is doing everything, said General Herzi Alevi, just so you can be as strong as possible. Along our path in northern Gaza, the signs of civilian life have given way to the constant hum of drones and the distant echoes of artillery. Our time with the IDF began at the coordination base for the border crossing, the first international media to visit the site. The terror attack on October 7th hit hard here. The scars of machine gun fire and RPGs still visible. The base was mostly empty on the holiday, but not entirely. The IDF says nine soldiers were killed here and three kidnapped. It took 12 hours for Israel to regain control of the base. Now it's one of the main gates to Gaza. 
a month into the war, more than 10,000 Palestinians have been killed in Israeli attacks on Gaza, according to the Hamas-controlled Palestinian health ministry there. The IDF says 35 Israeli soldiers have been killed in the Strip since the start of the incursion. The October 7th attack by Hamas in Israel killed more than 1,400 people, mostly civilians. We stop at an overlook near the town of Jabalia. One of the things uncovered here on this hill near Jabalia is a meeting point of three different tunnels. And you can see if you take a look, that's one, two, three. They came together here and it let Hamas move underground quickly below the feet and out of sight. Colonel Tal, the tank commander, says there were many explosives here. There were many trenches. There were a lot of weapons and ammunition. We found here a storage site with many explosives against tanks, RPGs. Even from a distance, the scale of the destruction is stunning. Apartment buildings, homes, neighborhoods decimated. Colonel Tal says the area is almost completely evacuated. We don't see civilians in our eyes. We see sometimes terrorists, but the majority of civilians haven't been here in a while. They've all gone south in the direction of the heart of the Strip. As we talk, we hear rocket fire and see the trails of the launches, triggering red alerts in Ashdod. After about 90 minutes inside northern Gaza, we make our way out, hugging the border wall for safety. Even here, so close to the exit, we stop briefly so the dust clears and we can make sure the way ahead is safe. In the distance, once again, the smoke from another strike. The IDF spokesperson said the ground operation in Gaza will only deepen as Israel said it has largely encircled Gaza City and is moving towards the heart of the city in its ground operation. Wolf, I also spoke with the tank commander about the humanitarian corridor that we've talked so much about earlier today and he said they're aware of the humanitarian corridor. It's not his job to coordinate it, but he knows when it is and where it is. And even in the middle of a war, he knows you don't shoot in that direction even as the war rages around them in other parts. Oren Lieberman in Tel Aviv for us. Oren, thanks for that report. And joining me now to discuss all the news out of the Middle East, the National Security Council Coordinator for Strategic Communications, retired Admiral John Kirby. John, thanks so much for joining us. First, I want to get to Israel's daily four-hour pauses that are now being reported in northern Gaza to allow civilians to flee south. How will these pauses actually work? And have the Israelis fully committed to them? They have fully committed to them. Uh, and the way it's going to work is about three hours before the pauses will begin, the Israelis will, through a variety of means, uh, notify civilians living in northern Gaza that the pause is going to start and here's when, and, and uh, also advise on the, the safest corridor, the safest passage, passage out. They've added now a second safe passage corridor, humanitarian corridor, they call it, uh, out of northern Gaza along the coast road. So that's, that's one more than they had before over the, just the last few days. Now, this is a step in the right direction, Wolf. I mean, this could help reduce civilian casualties by giving people uh, the confidence uh, and the time uh, to move out of harm's way and not find themselves in the crossfire between Hamas and the Israeli Defense Forces. But, John, even with these uh, brief pauses, is there really anywhere in Gaza that's uh, safe for Palestinian civilians, uh, and we're told almost half of them are children. 
Well, Hamas is placing those children and those families in harm's way by tunneling under their apartment complexes and using their hospitals and schools as, as command bunkers. Hamas is placing these civilians deliberately and, and directly uh, in harm's way in between the IDF and, and Hamas. And so these safe corridors and these pauses this breathing space and time for people to get out uh, should help alleviate some of the anxiety and the worry uh, that so many innocent Palestinians are, are feeling every day in, in North Gaza. As you know, uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, another terror group in Gaza, is now saying it's ready to release two hostages on humanitarian grounds. Israel has not confirmed or denied this yet. What is the U.S. assessment of this situation, of this statement? Yeah, we're uh, monitoring that ourselves right now. We're not in a position to confirm the veracity of it. Obviously, Wolf, we want all the hostages released. They shouldn't be there in the first place. Uh, but as we've seen in the past, there has been some limited release of hostages under quote-unquote humanitarian grounds. We've seen four hostages released under those grounds by Hamas. Uh, so we're gonna explore this with our Israeli counterparts and, and we'll see where it goes. We want them all out. And that's another reason why, Wolf, these pauses can be so valuable because should we be able to secure the release of hostages in whatever number, you're gonna need some sort of safe passage to get them from where they're being held to a position, a place of safety where they can get medical care and be reunited with their families. That means you're gonna have to have a pause in the fighting at least for a limited period of time. The CIA director today met, as you know, with the head of Israel's intelligence agency uh, and Qatari officials as well. Uh, the Qatari officials, as you know, have a direct line to Hamas. Their purpose was to discuss releasing hostages in exchange for a three-day pause in fighting. I understand you can't share specifics, but did the U.S. see progress in these talks? What I would tell you is that uh, we're going to continue to try to find progress uh, in, this in this, these negotiations to get these hostages out. I, I don't want to talk too specifically, and I don't want to negotiate here in public. Um, but, <clears throat> excuse me, these conversations are important to keep having. Uh, we're glad that we still have those lines of communication open because that can make all the difference in the world. Uh, there isn't an hour that has gone by since October 7th where President Biden and this team hasn't been focused on the plight of these hostages, including some number of Americans, and making sure we can get them reunited with their families. And we're going to stay at that work all across the administration. I want to get to another very disturbing development that's unfolding. As you know, the U.S. struck Iranian weapons in Syria last night in retaliation for attacks on American forces. But since then, U.S. troops have already been targeted in four more attacks. So are these U.S. retaliatory strikes actually working? It is not uncommon after we take a retaliatory strike for there to, to, to be some sort of uh, 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 secondary set of strikes by these proxy groups. Um, we haven't seen them be very effective. Uh, that doesn't mean we're taking it lightly or we're undermining it at all. Uh, it, we, we obviously will continue to do what we have to do to protect our troops in Iraq and Syria. You heard the president talk about that today. Look, these, these proxy groups and the IRGC, the Revolutionary Guard Corps that supports them, resources them, trains them, funds them, gives them these capabilities, they have a choice to make. Uh, we've shown that we will do what we have to do to protect our troops in, in Iraq and Syria. We'll continue to do that. If they want uh, yet more responses from the American people um, and from the American military, you know, then, uh, then they'll, have to, they'll have to deal with the consequences for that if, if they're going to keep striking. Yeah, the Pentagon says 56 U.S. troops have already been injured in these strikes by these various proxy groups. I'm going to leave it there. John Kirby, thanks so much for joining us. You bet. 
And there's more breaking news ahead. Why a Mar-a-Lago maid and woodworker may be called to testify against Donald Trump. CNN's exclusive new reporting, that's next. Breaking news tonight, CNN has learned that multiple Mar-a-Lago staffers who worked for Donald Trump may find themselves on the witness stand testifying against the former president. CNN crime and justice reporter Caitlin Polance has exclusive details. She's here with us right now. So who may be called to testify and, and how is Trump reacting? Well, Wolf, we have learned of a lot of different people from the very low-level workers at Mar-a-Lago to people that are in Trump's inner circle. So Paula Reed and I did some work to try and figure this out. And it includes people like a plumber, a maid, a chauffeur, a woodworker, people that would have been in and out of Mar-a-Lago and had noticed things that were off or were odd or that caught their attention and that ultimately have helped the prosecutors build this case against Donald Trump, that there were classified documents strewn about the property after his presidency. One of the things we heard about was a woodworker, uh, a contractor going to the property, installing crown molding in Donald Trump's bedroom. And that person noticed a stack of papers that looked quite odd. He thought it was a movie prop. Turns out that appeared to be classified records with a cover sheet on top of that stack of papers. But of course, that's not all. There would also very likely be Secret Service agents that are called intelligence officials that would have spoken to Trump about the importance of being very careful with the handling of classified records. And then other people in Trump circles, people we've been hearing about for quite some time, Evan Corker and his former lawyer and others. Stay with us. Uh, we got some more questions for you, but I also want to bring in our legal analysts, Elliot Williams and Norm Eisen. Elliot, how could these potential witnesses benefit the prosecution oh. in this criminal case involving these highly classified documents? I think a few ways, uh, Wolf. Now, number one, these are individuals who would have firsthand knowledge of what they saw. None of it is secondhand. It's not being filtered through other people. They're testifying or would be testifying about what they saw firsthand. And these are not the kinds of witnesses who are collaborators or co-conspirators and might be seen as tainted in some way by their relationship to the things that are being investigated. That, that's big uh, as far as evidence goes. More importantly, these are the kinds of people who would be compelling or believable to a jury. They're, you know, these are ordinary um, blue collar or working class folks who, who prosecutors would have to put on a witness stand in front of a jury of, of ordinary citizens. These and who are live not, in that community. Who live in the community. They are members of the community as well. And that everything in trials comes down to credibility and who jurors feel they can trust. And I think this is the kind of witness that, frankly, you want to be putting on if you're a prosecutor. So, Norm, are there pros and cons to calling these witnesses? Well, the con to calling these witnesses is that they are what we sometimes refer to as civilians. These are not people, unlike Evan Corcoran, who spent his whole professional life around courts of law, he knows how to testify. These are not people who are accustomed to being on the stand. They're not accustomed to the limelight. They work for Donald Trump, so there'll be a certain amount of awkwardness. Uh, Elliot and I have, I dare say, put on thousands of witnesses between us, hundreds at least. Witnesses sometimes do blow up. They have to be carefully prepared by the prosecution, Wolf. And Trump's lawyers, we saw this most recently, how they went after Michael Cohen, how they went after E. Jean Carroll in that case. Trump's lawyers will be no hold, holds barred. And, and, there's no, and there's an open question as to whether Trump's team could pay 
uh, for the legal fees for some of these witnesses too, which could create a, a conflict and maybe even uh, raise questions in the eyes of a jury as to whether they might be conflicted. On that point, uh, Caitlin, there are several of these witnesses still work at Mar-a-Lago and are getting legal support help from Trump, right? That's right. One of um, Some of the people are receiving help with lawyers, and that's something that we know the prosecutors have actually been watching very diligently. It came up in one of the indictments that he called uh, someone who became his co-defendant to offer a lawyer, and that person still has a lawyer that was being paid for through Trump circles. But one of the things that was so interesting about this is how protective we learned Trump was over these people when he heard this maid who cleans his bedroom suite had been one of the people the investigators were speaking to and could become a potential witness against him. He went ballistic. That's what one source told us. And then there was another person in this group of workers, an IT worker, who did get a cooperation deal with attorneys, left the Trump legal team's fold, got a federal public defender to represent him. Uh, and that person no longer works at Mar-a-Lago. Trump didn't realize he was still working at the club and was quite unhappy that he was still drawing a Trump org paycheck, essentially, after he became a cooperator in this case. What do you think, uh, Elliot? How worried should Trump be that some of these witnesses, people who worked at Mar-a-Lago, could testify under oath? Yeah, I saw boxes that had top secret classification documents. I witnessed those and observed those documents. No, notwithstanding all the troubleshooting. And we're none doing of these here. staffers had yeah. security clearances. None of them had security clearances. But again, like I said, notwithstanding some of the sort of problems we're spotting here, anytime a witness who lives in your house and witnesses the events for which you have been charged with crime sees something, it is a matter of concern for you. And for all of the reasons that we've noted, these are people who could be seen as credible. Now, now of course, we don't know who they are. We don't know, you know, if they have criminal histories or anything in their backgrounds that might cast doubt on their testimony as witnesses. But still, it is valuable firsthand testimony that could be uh, quite bad for a defendant. Who do you think would be the most damaging for Trump? Well, you never know who that Cassidy Hutchison is going to be, that one person who steps forward. None of us had ever heard of her before she became the star, the John Dean of the January 6th hearings. I think uh, Evan Corcoran could be the most devastating. I believe that the, the plumber and the maid and the chauffeur and the word workers, they'll assemble a mosaic of evidence. But Corcoran was forced to testify about his conversations with Trump. It goes right to intent. That is the toughest issue to prove. So the if you're upset about your former maid test or current maid testifying, imagine your lawyer in whom you've confessed confided all of the confidences about the case. Very dangerous. How significant is it that the judge in this particular case down in Florida, Judge Eileen Cannon, is considering delaying the start of this trial until after the 2024 presidential election? Well, for Donald Trump's legal team, it is very much of the ballgame, if not the whole ballgame here. They are pushing so hard to have this trial date moved till after the election of next year. We're waiting. It's been more than a week that Judge Cannon said she would tell us when this trial is going to be. It's set for May, and we just don't have final word from her yet. We're waiting for that. But the 
the reason this is so significant is that right now this trial is about national security. Donald Trump, how he was handling himself, conducting himself after he left the presidency and handling national security secrets, the sort of things that are core to the protection of this nation. That is something that the Justice Department very likely wants viewers to be able to learn about in a trial setting before the election so that they can have it something they're considering when they go to the polls. There's a possibility that this sort of testimony about what people were seeing, what they noticed about Trump, what they noticed about Mar-a-Lago, that doesn't even come out in public testimony until after the election. We shall see uh, very sensitive material. Indeed, guys, thank you very, very much. Just ahead, the substance and the pot shots as five of Donald uh, Trump's Republican presidential rivals hold a heated debate. Tonight, Donald Trump is hosting Florida Republicans down at Mar-a-Lago, a day after skipping the latest Republican presidential debate. Five of Trump's GOP rivals sh uh, sharing, uh, their, sharpening their attacks on him and on each other's, as CNN's Jeff Zeleny reports. Tonight, the Republican primary is heading toward a boiling point. I disagree with Nikki Haley. You have Ron and Trump joining Biden and Pelosi. One day after the third presidential debate highlighted deep divisions on a range of hot button issues, including abortion. I would challenge both Nikki and Ron to join me at a 15 week limit. It is in our nation's best interest. Senator Tim Scott pushing his rivals to support a national 15 week abortion ban despite voters rejecting a similar call this week in Virginia, while Ohio overwhelmingly voted to protect abortion rights in the state constitution. Let's find consensus. Let's agree on what, how we can ban late-term abortions. Let's make sure we encourage adoptions. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley seeking common ground, even as Florida Governor Ron DeSantis criticized the anti-abortion movement for repeatedly failing to make its case a year after the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade. You got to do a better job on these referenda. I think of all the stuff that's happened to the pro-life cause, uh, they have been caught flat-footed on these referenda. Scott, who is banking his candidacy on appealing to Iowa's evangelical voters, seized on that criticism, telling CNN's Dana Bash he disagreed with DeSantis. I don't understand why he said what he said. There's no reason to insult the pro-life voter. Two months before the Iowa caucuses kick off the 2024 contest, the sparring among Republican challengers reached a new level. Even as the far and away frontrunner Donald Trump was again spared scrutiny because he mocked the debate from a nearby rally. They're not watchable. You know, the last debate was the lowest rated debate in the history of politics. So, so therefore, do you think we did the right thing by not participating? It was the first Republican debate since Hamas attacked Israel October 7th, placing a renewed focus on foreign policy. All candidates pledged unwavering support for Israel. Finish the job once and for all with these butchers, Hamas. America is here, no matter what it is you need at any time, to preserve the state of Israel. Some of the biggest flashpoints came between Haley and Vivek Ramaswamy who blasted her hawkish views and accused her of rushing to war. Do you want Dick Cheney in three-inch heels? She wasted little time pushing back. First, like to say they're five-inch heels, and I don't wear them unless you can run in them. I wear heels. They're not for a fashion statement. They're for ammunition. Later, with tensions inflamed during a discussion over TikTok in China, the attacks grew personal. 
In the last debate, she made fun of me for actually joining TikTok while her own daughter was actually using the app for a long time. So you might want to take care of your family first. Leave my daughter out of your voice. Adult daughter. You're just the easy answer. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie struck a far more civil tone and repeatedly sought to rise above the fray. Today, he told CNN, some of last night's exchanges were absurd. The juvenile back and forth between Vivek Ramaswamy and Nikki Haley. I thought the whole idea was to win the 2024 election and defeat Joe Biden and to show who, in fact, could do that in this field. And we are learning tonight that Chris Christie is actually planning on visiting Israel, the first Republican candidate to do so. Well, foreign policy is front and center, but at the end of all of that, it's hard to see anything really change the dynamic of this race. Donald Trump, who was not there, is still in firm command. He certainly is. All right, thanks very much. Excellent report, Jeff Zeleny, for us. Coming up, new video just coming into the Situation Room of that U.S. airstrike on a weapons facility in Syria used by Iranian forces. This just in to CNN. The Pentagon has just released video of U.S. airstrikes targeting a weapons facility in Syria linked to Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and other affiliated groups. Let's bring in CNN's Arlette Science. She's over at the White House for us. Arlette, uh, so what does this video show? Well, Wolf, this video is giving uh, people a first look at these airstrikes that were carried out against a weapons facility with links to Iran and Iran uh, proxy groups. Now, this, these airstrikes were carried out by two F-15 fighter jets uh, on Wednesday evening U.S. time. And uh, as you can see in the video, there uh, is a secondary explosion that can be seen. Now, a, a senior military official last evening had said that additional explosions had indicated that this had uh, struck facilities that was housing weapons that may have likely been used on attacks against U.S. and coalition forces. There have been at least 41 times that U.S. and coalition forces have either uh, been uh, attacked by a one-way drone or by uh, rocket attacks as well. And it comes, as President Biden had just told reporters earlier today, that he had ordered these strikes and that he decided to make uh, these strikes, conduct these strikes, uh, because they had hit us. Now, uh, the president had also said that he believes that it is working because they are reaching the targets that they had reaching or have reached so far. Uh, but also, he told reporters that the U.S. would prepare to be prepared to launch these type of strikes again if needed. Arlette Signs reporting from the White House. Thanks very much. Very significant development indeed. Right now, let's get the latest on the very dire humanitarian situation inside Gaza. The White House says Israel has agreed to daily four-hour pauses in military operations for portions of the northern end of the Gaza Strip. But for many civilians, life in southern Gaza is fraught with danger as well. CNN's Salma Abdelaziz has our report. If you are among those still in northern Gaza, this is what life looks like now, the heart of a battle zone. May God protect us, this man says. Those who do not have the means to leave, we will have to stay where we are. It's as if they've sentenced us to death. The Israeli military continues to call on all residents of northern Gaza to move south. It is the forced exodus of an entire population, Palestinians say. But some are unable or unwilling to heed the warning. 
thousands of them are taking shelter at Gaza City hospitals. Among them, patients that can't be moved, families too afraid to travel through bombs and bullets, and medical staff, loyal to a duty of care. Dr. Mohammed Abu Namuz says he has sent his family away, but he will stay behind. What can be done? There's no other way out of this. There is no safety, he says. That's why it's best if I get my family out so I can focus on treating patients. On Wednesday alone, as many as 50,000 people made the perilous journey south via the time-limited corridors set up by the Israeli military. They're moving because they understand that Hamas has lost control in the north and that the south is safer, a safer area where they receive medicine, water and food. They understand it's an improvement. But the south is not safe and hardly an improvement. Israeli airstrikes level homes here too. And the conditions for the estimated 1.5 million now cramped in this corner of the enclave are described as inhumane. Thousands of the displaced are living on the street. There is no aid, no water, the toilets are closed, she says, and no bakeries. We get a single loaf of bread every three or four days after waiting in long lines for half a day. And UN shelters are overcrowded. At one site, at least 600 people must share a single toilet, the UN says. And as for humanitarian assistance, it is so far a drop in the ocean of need. This is the gateway to a hellish nightmare. And then I see in front of me the lifeline that would bring relief and humanitarian assistance, which until now has not been enough, woefully inadequate. The conditions are so dire that this family says they decided to leave a UN shelter and move back into the ruins of their bombed-out home. We're still afraid, of course, for our children, but it's the lesser of two evils, this father says. At least it's better than being surrounded by disease, hunger and fear. At least here, our children are at home. With three out of every four Gazans internally displaced, the UN estimates, home is what so many dream of here, but many fear that sense of normalcy will never return. Salma Abdulaziz, CNN, London. And thanks to Salma for that report. Uh, coming up, more breaking news we're following. Federal law enforcement officials are now investigating suspicious letters possibly laced with fentanyl sent to election offices around the country. We're following breaking news. Federal law enforcement officials are now investigating suspicious letters potentially laced with fentanyl that were sent to election offices in at least five states. For more on the story, I'm joined now by CNN's senior justice correspondent, Evan Perez. Evan, what do we know about these letters? Well, Wolf, uh, in the case of, of at least a couple of these states in uh, Georgia and in Washington state, uh, officials say that they suspect that the letters contain uh, the, the potentially deadly drug fentanyl. Uh, right now, they're investigating more than a dozen of these letters that were sent to uh, mostly to election officials in Georgia, in Oregon, Nevada, 
Washington State and California will there's also another letter that was received by the office of the Attorney General in the Tex in Texas in Austin and that's also being investigated at this point uh, the investigators are treating all of these letters as potentially connected uh, given the timing they've all been received over the course of the last couple of days and of course uh, this raises a lot of concern you hear here's uh, uh, the Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger addressing uh, the letter received in Fulton County today this is domestic terrorism and it needs to be condemned by anyone that holds elected office and anyone that wants to hold elected office anywhere in America. And well, you know, this is a big concern for elections officials, especially around the country. They've been receiving a lot of threats since the 2020 election. And it's something that going forward, obviously, it's a major concern for the FBI and the U.S. Postal Inspection Service that are investigating these letters. Wolf? Certainly is. Uh, uh, Evan, stand by. I want to bring in Donnell Harvin. He's the former chief of Homeland Security and Intelligence for Washington, D.C. Donnell, thanks very much for joining us. Who do you think, who might have sent these letters and what could the purpose actually be? Well, if I don't want to get ahead of the uh, investigative authorities that are looking at this, uh, I will say that it's very serious. I will also say that for years, our um, federal officials have been warning us about uh, the uh, security of our elections. And when you see incidents like this, uh, it really is concerning. Fentanyl is not a benign substance. Uh, it is what we call in the business of the poor man's weapon of mass destruction. Uh, in, the, in the wrong hands, the proper quantities, it can kill a lot of people. Uh, there's a number of individuals who could possibly be behind this. Once again, I don't want to get ahead of uh, uh, investigative authorities. Um, but once again, if you're sitting at home and you're an election official or you're someone who's going to volunteer uh, to go and, and help run elections, it really has a chilling effect on you. Fulton County officials, uh, Donnell, say this is just a preview of what we can expect in 2024. What should authorities be preparing for? Yes, I mean, you know what, when we saw in, in the last election, we saw armed militia showing up at polling sites. And so, once again, if you're an election official, you're going to cast a vote and you're seeing people, you know, AR-15s fully armored up with body armor. Uh, and then you see, uh, as we saw in the January 6th committee, uh, election officials being, uh, having death threats made against them. And now you have this. Once again, I think the, the federal government's going to give us a, a full accounting of, of what happened. I'm sure they will catch the individual individuals that were uh, responsible for this. Um, but it's going to take a lot to secure our election infrastructure. It is a vast infrastructure. There's a lot of moving parts. It, it spans uh, all levels of government. And so they need to start working on this. The federal government through DHS has an amazing agency called CISA uh, that I'm sure is going to be all over this. We'll hear more from them soon. Um, but this is concerning, uh, at least the, 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 the facts that we have right now. Very concerning. Donnell, thank you very much, Donnell Harvin, uh, helping us. And to our viewers, thanks very much for watching. I'm Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. Aaron Burnett out front starts right now. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.